Welcome to the Earth's Edge podcast. I'm your host, James McManus. At Earth's Edge, we run guided expeditions with a focus on environmental and cultural sustainability. We created this podcast to share stories from people who have found the outdoors and fallen in love with adventure. Each month, we're giving away one of our summit jackets worth 150 euro. To be in the running, all you need to do is subscribe to our mailing list at earths-edge.com forward slash podcast. There's a link in the show notes. Now for today's guest. We all were involved in, and I think you learned on those trips how to be responsible for everybody and wait for everybody and look after everybody for a little bit of white water. You waited and the others waited until everybody came through. That was the Earth's Edge medical director and my dad, George McManus. It took me ages to get him on the podcast, but I'm glad I did as he's a key part of the team at Earth's Edge. He provides 24-7 phone support for all of our expedition doctors working throughout the world. We chat about how we got into the outdoors, his medical career, the impact my mum had on our lives and his experience on Kilimanjaro. Hope you guys enjoy it. So George, the two of us have been trekking all over the world with Earth's Edge and I know yourself and my mum Libby, you did a ton of stuff together prior to me setting up the business in 2007. But what I want to talk to you about um, starting off is your childhood and really, did you go on any adventures growing up as a kid? You were born in Atlow in the west of Ireland in 1946 in a little village called Curraline outside um, Athlone. What was that like? Asher is a different world back then. I can remember back, I went to start a national school in 1951. And I remember it was about two miles from our house. And when you come home the evening time, you'd have loads of jobs to be doing. You'd looking after animals, picking potatoes, things like that. And it was a very Catholic traditional house. There was a sacred heart lamp burning in the kitchen all the time. I served mass on a Sunday. So we were always busy and we were never short of anything. But you just did the jobs on the small farm. As, and it was expected of you to do them. There was no such a thing as paying your pocket money or anything like that. Yeah, you were just free labour. Like, sure, you, you took advantage of me in the same way, you know, my childhood, like. Looking back on it now, it sounds harsh, but we didn't know any better and we were happy doing things like that. But there was, I suppose, where I got my work ethic. I was just working all the time. We were never short of jobs. We'd be doing more at the weekends and then in the summertime would be saving turf, making hay, fixing fences and hanging gates and siding thistles and pure hardship. <laughs> and did you, you didn't have electricity growing up, no? It came in 1956 when I was 10. Okay. So that made a huge difference. It kind of got rid of pookies and banshees and it lightened up the countryside. So it made a big difference. But I remember about the house, the only warm room in the house was the kitchen where we had a standy range where we burned turf. But every other room in the house is absolutely iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. Jesus, I tell you, we're gone soft these days. Like, you were tough back then. But we had the best of food. My mother used to bring a couple of dozen eggs into the local grocer in Clone on a Saturday. And in exchange, she bought flour and tea. 
Yeah. And we had everything else. We had milk, eggs, fowl, lambs, chickens, their own butter. They were the only things we needed to buy. So it was a kind of a barter system. It sounds very romantic, doesn't it? Like there's a lot of people now who are trying to rewild land and want to get back to the land and become more woke. Like what would you, you've lived that life. Would you recommend it? You know, living off the grid and all this kind of stuff. Like it's kind of, it's a romantic notion, but it's tough as well, isn't it? No, it is tough. It's especially tough back then because you're talking about the horse and plough. We didn't have a tractor. Yeah, it's mad. And it's just manual labour and... Look, and we did it. It was the thing. Most people worked from morning to dusk. And that was it. Everybody else was doing it. So it was normal. We didn't know any better. And like, you're you're the, the hardest uh, working person I've ever met in my life. Like, where did you learn that ethic like? Of I learned it at home. I mean, you were never short of a job in the farm, especially at the weekends and irrespective of what time of the year. It was a mixed farm and it was all over the place. We spent a lot of time driving animals. We had 30 acres in one place and 10 miles down the road, we had two acres and you sleep well at night, I'll tell you that. There's a there's a lot of listeners probably from Mead or South Tipperary where there's good land, but I've actually been over a few times visiting your home place and it's, Jesus, more rocks than there is grass in the place. Like it's, it's tough going, you little small holdings here and there. But um, did you go on many uh, adventures growing up? Like you had two brothers and a sister. Did you go off and adventure at all or were you just working We went on our holidays to Salt Hill every year. Yeah. Uh, that was very unusual. We were the only people in the village that went on holiday. And I remember a big deal. We went down to Shannon Airport one night. And we, we went down when it was dark. There was nothing happening. Yeah. And the only other thing I can remember is going from Athlone by steam engine wow. to climb Crowpatrick on Pilgrim Sunday okay. in July. In your bare feet? Steam engine. I know we had shoes now. <laughs> I'm only messing with you. But at those times, James, I wore hand-me-downs. Yeah, yeah, big time. Clothes or shoes for my older brother. I was glad to have them. Yeah. You've been trekking probably over 30 countries around the world. Like, did you have that thirst to travel growing up? I know you had um, an uncle who joined the Royal Air Force and was eventually shot down in the Second World War over in Munich. And you also told me about an aunt of yours that moved to London who was a nurse and ended up caring for um, the director of an investment fund. And as he got more sick, she took over the business from him, learned how to, to trade stocks and ended up dying in the late 80s with an estate worth 30 million sterling like that's mental stuff like so did you did you always have a passion for travel or what way were you growing up like well my mother's brother he left the farm in north Roscommon when he was about 17 i think he just was fed up at home and as you would be at that age and he joined the raf and he was shot down over in munich in 1944 yeah my mother's sister then she trained as a nurse and she went to london and she got involved in private nursing and she was nursing this man who owned the company and he was into stocks and shares. This woman was very bright. So she kind of learned how to dabble in stocks and shares. And eventually she moved up the company and she had a huge Rolls Royce company car. And she did leave 30 million in the end, but she left it in a trust. She didn't leave any of the 30 million to you. Well, to be fair to her now, between <laughs> all her nieces and nephews, before two years before she died, she left us all three thousand sterling each. Wow, there's a lot back but then. But she left this other money 
in a trust. And some reporter in, a, in one of the rag papers got a hold of it and they interviewed Owen. And Owen, of course, my older brother, he denied all knowledge. <laughs> Say not. Yeah, good man. But we saw none of the 30 million, but it was invested in a trust over there. But she became more English than the English people. She reminded me of Margaret Thatcher. She was very grand and had fur coats. And, and she grew up in a little little village in Roscommon, like. Yeah. That's mad. She did it? well for herself. So she was very bright. George, did you always want to study medicine? No, I hadn't a clue. I did my leave and search when I was 17 and three or four months. Okay. Now, we came from a very traditional family. Two of my aunts were nuns. Four of my uncles were doctors. Three of my aunts were doctors. And two of my uncles were priests. So my mother, being a traditional Irish family, she decided the eldest boy would go for the priesthood. Yeah. And then she suggested to me that I should try medicine. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I said, fine, she'll go along with us, see what it's like. And then the youngest boy would inherit the farm. Yeah. And my only sister, she would get a good education and hopefully she, my mother would say she'd marry well. Yeah, get ready. She's <laughs> mad, isn't it? Like, I can imagine saying that to, 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 it's just times have changed, change for the better. Like, I mean, yeah. But that was my vocation. I didn't have it. My mother had a vocation for my older brother and myself, but thankfully it worked out for me and I loved every minute of it. Yeah. So, I wanted to ask you about studying. You went to Dublin when you were 17 to study medicine in UCD. And like, I just think it's mad. I remember you telling me before you went to Dublin for the first time when you were 16 on a school tour. And then like okay. a generation later, like when you compare that to my life, like I went to Kenya to visit cousins of ours um, when I was nine and we climbed Mount Kenya. And you went to Dublin right. for the first time when you were 16. It's just, it's just mental to change. Like, but how was that? How was the experience of living in the big smoke? Like, did you like it? That was tough. Like, there were 252 people in my year. And I was from rural Ireland. And basically, I was living in accommodation. There were no such thing as apartments in. I mean, there were flats. They were dingy. And the first two and a half years wasn't nice. It was only after that when I was exposed to the hospital system that it became more interesting. And really, I gelled in very well. But the first two or three years were tough enough yeah. i mean we were learning studying things like zoology and biology it's nonsense <laughs> we never needed them yeah I, I i can't see using zoology most as a gp you know but um, well, the I present just... system now that i have in limerick is the best system have your primary degree and then you go into medical school as a postgraduate in limerick and you do your four years there's no need for the six years that i did yeah no absolutely so, George, you qualified then in 1969 and you went to intern in the States in Virginia in a, hosp a military hospital over there. Is that right, Jay? As a student in fifth May, we all went to America to sample. So I went to Michigan for the summer. Okay. And I really liked the system over there. And then I interned in Norfolk, Virginia. Now, that was something else because Norfolk was the naval base of the Mediterranean fleet for the Americans. Okay. And when I went out there, they put me on the emergency room for the first month, seven in the morning to seven in the evening, six days a week. Yeah. 
And it was mental. It was the time, it was that very month, July 1969, that Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Mad. And I've no recollection of it because it was a huge thing in America, but I was so stressed out, if you like, because I hadn't enough of... I was green coming out of college. And the American guys, all the American house staff were three years older than me. They all had what we have in Limerick now. They all had their primary degrees and then they went into medical school. Okay. So when I, I was 23, they were... 27, 28. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, it was a fast learning curve. Yeah. And I learned very fast. And it was a different concept. I'd be examining a patient and I'd say it around, such a guy has a two-finger enlarged liver. And they'd say, well, you cut out that nonsense. We do blood tests and scans out here. Yeah. There's no need for that kind of, or has he a systolic murmur or a diastolic murmur? George, did you enjoy your time off while you were there? I know you had a Ford Mustang. You, you That's a fairly decent car. You must have been a bit of a player, were you, in your time off? Like? <laughs> well, I had a girlfriend out there. I think her name was Clarissa. Okay. <laughs> so it was very nice. It was so hot in the summertime. Now, I, like yourself, have red hair, and the sun doesn't agree with me. Yeah, I know. So I wouldn't be... I went to Virginia Beach, which is a fairly famous beach, which is so hot. Even the sand would burn your soul off your foot. <laughs> so listen, you, you spent three years out there. You got some experience and you came back to Ireland in 1972 and you set up practice uh, as a GP in Ross Gray. What was that like? Tell me about that. Well, sure, Ross Gray needed a doctor and I was glad to set up there. And it was love at first sight. I love the people from the world go and I think they like me. But it was difficult. I mean, the main trouble I had, I was 25 driving a Ford Capri, which was a kind of a fancy car. Yeah. And I just bought a house. And the biggest problem I had, I needed somebody to help me. Now, while all the priests in the parish had a housekeeper, I needed somebody, but I couldn't possibly have a female in the house with me. <laughs> so I put a lad in the local paper looking for a butler. And I got one reply from a Michael Noonan. He was working with a retired bank manager up in Eden Derry, who was a widow. And he remarried, and the new woman threw him out. Okay. So he just came along to me, and he suited me fine. He answered the door, <clears throat> answered the phone, and I was glad to have him. I was a bit of a religious fanatic, and he didn't know how to cook, really. But look, at, <laughs> I was glad to have him. And I was a marked man then. I mean, when you were a young doctor in the town and driving a car, I mean, I was under pressure to get married. And, you know, there were, wouldn't you think that guy would be married, you know, and he having everything going for Maybe they were, they were, yeah, there was that said, it was your talk of the town. The reason you had a had a, a butler was because of the hours you were working. So you were working every day, eight to six in the practice. Then you were on call every second night and you did every second weekend working as well and you didn't really take any holidays that's absolutely mental like when you think about well, it well as well as that i did four night surgeries between seven and nine wow but you're going back to times where most doctors in small towns never met each other they probably didn't even talk to each other yeah it was only from the time i started particularly when i got a new partner and other younger doctors that we 
began to socialise together and we set up lots. But in the beginning, I was on every night. And then I was very lucky to get a very good partner in the early 1980s, Paul in the food. She always was and is a very good doctor. And she was most helpful. And she was a brilliant partner for me in the 1980s and 1990s. So that gave me a better rota, more time off and this type of thing. But in the beginning, it was very hard. But then everybody else was working just as hard. It was the thing you did. So guys, I just want to bring Ariana in there to chat about our big announcement last week. Ariana, what's the crack? Hi, James. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And a big hello to all our lovely listeners. So... You may have already seen that we have recently become a certified B Corp. This is something that we have been working towards for quite some time now, so it's a huge achievement and one that we are incredibly proud of. The fact that we are the highest scoring Irish B Corp is an absolute honour and something we are beyond delighted with. Being B Corp certified, we're joining a community of over 3,700 other amazing companies throughout the world who are doing the utmost for their staff customers and communities all the while minimizing their environmental impact this is savage i'm so excited about this it's such a special moment for all of us so tell me this what exactly is b corp it's like a fair trade certification right it's very similar so many people want to know where their food comes from and if it's sustainably sourced or if our clothes are ethically manufactured so we thought well our clients should know more about the company they're traveling with to put it simply the b corp status recognizes businesses that balance purpose with profit putting environmental and social responsibilities to the forefront of how they operate. B Corps are committed to using business as a force for good, ensuring they are actively benefiting the planet and our communities through sustainable business practices and creating environmental awareness. So, over the next number of weeks, I'll be jumping on the podcast to tell you more about what B Corp is, how the assessment works, what it means for our staff and customers, and our existing and future community and environmental projects. Sounds great, Ariana. We'll chat to you next week. Cool. Thanks, James. Chat soon. So, George, when you were about 28, you met my mum, Libby, and things started to go downhill pretty rapid then. She had a massive impact in your life. Like, she was an amazing woman, really, when you think of it, like. Oh, she, she was very bright. She was able to multitask. That was the main thing. Yeah. And she was very involved and very type A personality and very assertive. And basically, I wanted to keep the butler. I was looking for a premises down in Rosemary Square, and she was in a flat upstairs. So when I met her, she suddenly told me then that premises was for sale. So I bought it. The joke at the time was that I had to buy her as well. She came with the premises. <laughs> but anyway, I went very hard on her to keep the butler. He could stay in a flat on top of the surgery downtown. Mm. And she said, no way. So she said, it's either herself or the butler. One of us have to go. Yeah. And yeah. for the second time, then poor Michael Noonan was let go. He was coming up the road one evening from the town and he met a neighbor of mine. And he said to her, I was in with the doctor today and I have blood pressure. And he said, the doctor across the road, he's a nice man, but that bloody woman. <laughs> So then we came along, you had four children, my older brother and sister Ed and Claire, and then me and my younger sister Kate. I want to ask you about that, George. Kate was my younger sister. She died of cot death when she was nine months um, old in 1985. I was two, Claire was four and Ed was six. 
It was a very tough time for you and Libby and something that always sticks to my mind is that because of your work circumstances, like you had to go back to work the day after her funeral. Those are different times. Like, you know, talk to me about that. When I came home from work one Tuesday evening around five o'clock, my wife's aunt was staying with us at the time and I said, where's Kate? Oh, she's still asleep upstairs. And I said, oh, go up and get her up. We won't sleep a wink tonight. So... My wife's aunt went up for her. The minute she came in the door, she looked white as a ghost. Fuck. So we tried to resuscitate her. And basically, my partner was in holidays in New Mexico. Yeah. Another doctor in the town was holidays in Donegal. This was a Tuesday evening, so we brought her to the church and buried her on the Wednesday. Fuck. And I had no alternative then but to go back to work on the Thursday. So when you look back on it, it's unreal, but... I've learned from it. One thing I learned any time I, I dealt with a death was I said to the people, the family, don't rush the funeral. Yeah. Take your time. Take three or four days. You need to grieve. You need time. So I learned from that. And it had consequences for Libby as well. Not for the first time she changed her career. She we became involved in the Cot Death Association. She yeah. went to San William Institute to train as a family therapist. But it had a huge effect on particularly Libby. Mm. I really hadn't bonded with Kate. Yeah. Libby had breastfed her, and I don't think she realized, Kate realized that I was in the house. Yeah. But it had a much bigger effect on Libby than myself. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a different way of dealing with things. You know, I think um, as men, a lot, we tend to kind of compartmentalize things and push things down. And so, you, you know, but I, I understand your perspective. But like there were different times, George, you know, when you think about it like that, I don't think something like that would happen now where you'd be straight back to work the next day. You'd have different support. When I went back to work, like most people didn't even mention. Yeah. As most men wouldn't know what to say to you. No. And a lot of them hadn't realized it happened because it all happened so suddenly. Yeah. But like they didn't mention it when they were in with me and I certainly didn't want to burden them with my own problems. But it happened and look, it was nobody's fault. Cut debt, it's the same nowadays, it happens. No reason for it, but it's tough. Two things I learned when you go into a house and there's a cut debt, the first thing you do is you find out the name of the baby. Yeah. We'd say it's Siobhan. So you talk about Siobhan to the family, Siobhan this, Siobhan that. And you don't say you have an angel in heaven. It's the last thing you need to say. And that's what was said to you back then, was it? Yeah, we have an angel in heaven. Libby would say, I don't want an angel in heaven. I want a child on earth. Yeah. So subsequently, when the cop death happens, you have to call the guards. So you can imagine young guards going into a house. But Libby did lecture the guards for several years free on cot death and how to manage it and what to do so some good thing she got really involved in that you know and i know and and it kind of really motivated her to help out with that and also train to become a family therapist and help other families out with bereavement you know that was very good of her at the time you know, when you think back, that was 1985. Society in Ireland has changed a huge amount um, in that time. Like we've had the the marriage referendum, we've had repeal the eighth, 
And like, I wanted to chat to you, like in the last couple of weeks, we had that recent report um, on the mother and baby homes in Ireland, which is a real open wound for us in Ireland. And a lot of countries have a, have a, a checkered history, I guess, or I don't know what the phrase is, but I know, I remember you telling me before things like contraception and the morning after pill were, were, were legal in Ireland, you were helping young women out with that. With that. Can, you, can you share some of that? Obviously, you've got a, a doctor-patient confidentiality there, but just tell me, talk to me about that time, like what was it like practicing medicine then in that context? There's a modern baby home in Rossbury closed down in 1969, and I started in 1972. Yeah. Back then, it was a very conservative country. Yeah. And people, nobody had mentioned anything about St. Anne's when I was down there. It was all hush-hush. Yeah. So gradually things improved then. And the morning after the ordinary pill became available and intrauterine contraceptive devices became available. And the way I looked at it, when somebody was in with me, it was a private setup. And I, the patient's welfare was number one. And the law and the church were way down the list. I did what was best for them. And once the pill became available, I prescribed it. And once my UDs became available, I inserted some of them. So I had no difficulty with that. And I helped out, but the patient was number one. She was number one. Yeah. I wasn't too worried about the law or what the church said, to be honest with you. Yeah. Come on, let's get back to talking about adventures. So my mum was really the inspiration for us all to get into the outdoors and go on, go on hiking. And one of the things I've inherited from her is that she, I always design itineraries like that are too hard and I end up doing them once like with Earth's Edge and then having to make it easier. I think that's something I, I learned from her. Like I remember one of the first adventures I remember going on was up in the Schlieve Blooms, which are the mountains close by us here are in, in tip like. There was us and family friends of ours from Dublin and uh, I must have been around five at the time and she decided to, to do this mad hike across the top of the Schlieve Blooms and it was full of heather, you know, like high heather. So I was only up to about your knee. So every step, I it was like I had to step over a high fence and we were absolutely bollocks after it. Do you remember that, yeah? I remember it well. Well, she was very adventurous, but she always overestimated her ability. Ah. And other people's abilities so we're usually struggling at the end of the hike and even though she had a compass and everything but she was great to organize she did all that organizing and we went up the devil's station the sleeve blooms and it was very adventurous and i think she gave you the taste for doing that kind of thing absolutely yeah i remember that trip as the same one there when we there was there was some mix up of where the food was going to be and we eventually got to the car and there was a couple of roastery chickens in the car and we absolutely devoured it like we nearly ate the bones and everything we were so hungry like so it's funny like but another thing like obviously growing up as you remember like kayaking was a huge part of my life i represented ireland as a kayaker and uh, traveled all over the world with it but back in the early days like we we all learned to to, to kayak together and i remember there was just thinking of this like you had to learn how to swim because obviously growing up in rural Ireland, there was no swimming pools around in your time. Like, so you had to learn in your early forties. And then about when I was starting kayaking, you must be in this 30 years ago. So you must be around 45. I'll never forget the day myself, yourself, and my older brother, Ed, we went out kayaking on the Brosna and 
like we were in the water about a minute and both you and he were in the water like swimming and you were freaking out you thought you were going to drown and I, I couldn't help you because it was so small like the kayaks back then they were four meters long when they got full of water they'd take about 400 liters of water like there was no way i was pulling one of them out of the water but the two of you were you let yourselves down badly you know it was a it was a funny event like do you remember that yeah i do it's strange when you think of it how we got involved in water sports coming from ross gray about as far away from the sea as you can get yeah we got involved with limbic canoeing club but like at that time i would have been quite happy to play tennis play golf but I remember playing with you in the tennis court one day, and if I hit the ball too hard, you got vexed. And then if I hit it too slow, you said I wasn't really trying. And at the canoeing, you became very efficient at it within a few weeks. And you remember the first episode down in Limerick? I'll never forget it. You came home tired on a Sunday evening, and your chin was split open. It needed to be stitched. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And we had an almighty row. You wouldn't let me touch you. And I had to call a colleague <laughs> to come and stitch you. But the canoeing around the Limerick, all those places, I mean, I was a champion swimmer. Immediately, if you got in towards an eddy at the edge of the river, so I'd turn upside down and I wasn't able to do the Eskimo roll. And it was a disaster. Yeah. I can still feel that cold water around Limerick in the middle of winter touching my body. But once it got over that, then it acted as an insulator, so it was fine. But the main thing, it was a great family thing. We all were involved in it. And I think you learned on those trips how to be responsible for everybody and wait for everybody and look after everybody. If we hit a little bit of white water. Mm-hmm. you waited and the others waited until everybody came through yeah but I think that's where you learned to be responsible if you are if you are now that's another problem yeah that's <laughs> actually that's actually a great story that the first time I was ever kayaking on a river I probably was nine eight or nine I'm not too sure but we went down to the Castle Connell the Shannon River outside Limerick and I capsized the top of this rapid and went down upside down and I clipped my chin and you weren't with us. My mom was there and she was like, oh, I'm not going to, to the regional now and A&E will be there all day. So she brought me back up to Ross Gray in the car, just with a bit, putting a bit of a bandage on it. And was like, obviously, sure, her husband was a doctor. Like he'd stitch me up, you know, no problem. So I went into you anyway. And because just because I was a bowel child, like you were trying to get me to steal. And I kept on shaking my head to try and avoid getting this needle put into my chin. So you, after about two minutes, you lost patience. You gave me two Valium and you sent me up to another doctor in town to do it. And I, ne- I could barely walk. Like, you're an awful whore for medicating me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were overtired and you know what you're like when you're overtired. Uh, so, sorry, I thought, George, me giving out to you is something I got into later in life. But based on what you're saying there, I used to always do it. Like, so, uh, yeah, that was a funny story, actually. I'll never forget that one. Like, I could barely walk. I remember going into Dr. Ryan's surgery and, and I had to have my arm around Libby because it was so drugged out of it. Like, you're an awful messer. <laughs> so, yeah, she, I mean, like, she's such an inspiration to me. And, like, I, I always think of Libby when I'm on the top of a big mountain. I, I taught a lot of other um, people about that feeling and what it's like to top out in a massive mountain and she always comes into my mind because she was such an inspiration for me and for all of us and 
she really got you guys into international trekking. I remember you, like when we got a little bit older, we were still like kind of, I don't know, whatever, 10, 12. You guys did an overseas trek every year or two. So you went like to Morocco, um, Spain, Mallorca, Scotland. You did the Tour de Mont Blanc and the Alps. And um, she took you up Killy in 1995, George. There's a very famous uh, story there. It's funny, like, because you're the medical director of Earth's Edge now and the businesses were one of the best companies in the world and the safest for sure. But like when yourself and Libby did Killy in 1995, you went up the five day hut route, which like I'll openly say to people now, do not go that way because there's not enough time to acclimatize. But there's a famous story about you managing to get up to Gilliman's Point, which is on the actual crater rim, but you were so bollocks, you, you, you lay down on the ground and refused to move. What's, can you remember that, yeah? I can't remember. I was absolutely knackered. I had no, I was sick in the stomach. My face was green and I had no energy in my legs. And I just said, I'm not going any further. Yeah. The other thing I remember coming down, the skiing on the shale on the way down. That's that great, yeah. We were used to walking in Morocco and Mallorca and England and Scotland. So we had no idea what Kilimanjaro was like or climatization or any of that. Yeah. Probably had all the wrong gear on us as well. I think that the, the five-day route alone would um, would stop you, even if you've done a lot of training. It's very tough. It didn't stop Libby going the whole way. Yeah, yeah. She was, <laughs> she was tough, like in fairness, in the hills herself. She wouldn't give in to it. It's funny someone telling you you're you've got an hour to go f- from Gilliman's Point. Like it's about it's a solid two hours, especially if you're tired, you know. So that's actually interesting. I want to talk to you about Libby and her story of how she passed away. So she, uh, so I started Earth's Edge in 2007. It was called Into India. There, I was running trips all over the Indian Himalayas. Started when I was 24. And um, she was such a help to me, you know, she used to answer the emails when I go away on trips. I was leading all the expeditions bar one or two. And she actually went hiking in Sikkim in northern India in October 2008. I was on a trek over a 5000 meter pass called the Gotiala Pass. It's a really nice trek. And she started developing back issues. And a little bit later that year, we found out that she got diagnosed or she got diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer. What was what was it like getting that news? Can you remember that? Well, I can remember very well. It was a, an awful shock. I mean, she was only 58 at the time. Yeah. She had it in her bones, in her glands, her liver, her brain, everywhere. I, I really felt guilty. I was saying to myself, how did I live with her and not notice anything? But the only complaint she has was pain in her back. Yeah. And she was climbing high mountains. And... I was I remember speaking to her own GP here in the town. We were wondering what was wrong with her because even though she had back pain, she had no signs of a disc renting, but sure look at it. Nobody's fault again. She was diagnosed, but she was so positive about it. Yeah. The only good thing about cancer, James, is that you have a very good idea where, how long someone is going to live. Yeah. That made it a bit easier because I remember asking we went up to Dublin and the consultant and his registrar talked to us and in general and I excused myself from Libya and I went back into him and I said to him look I want to know the story talk to me doctor to doctor I think she's going to live three or four months and they said the very outside two years so she lived 13 months 
Yeah. Now, she was very positive. She never looked at it negatively. She never blamed anybody. She was positive, positive, positive. She never lost weight. She looked terrific. She got a wig. She looked fabulous right up until the time she died, even though she had failed four kinds of chemotherapy. Yeah, for sure. She was tough. Like I just to kind of put that in context, what you were saying there, you know, you were saying that like cancer, it's horrible and all that, but you you get a bit of time to say goodbye to someone who was opposed to a heart attack or an, an, an accident. It's never easy. Like, but um, no. do you know what makes me smile all the time is like when I started in 2007, like she went on a trip every year, you know, I think she went to India twice the first year and she was so excited, like that this is what we were doing. And she was very supportive of me starting the business, even though I hadn't a clue what I was doing at the start. You know, I was so young, like, but um, it always makes me smile to think that like she 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 really wanted to go to a, tri a trip every year. You weren't really that arse. And then as it turns out, as we started like working with expedition doctors and I had a role through the business, you started going on a trip every year and it would have absolutely killed her like because I've been like, look, no, George is coming, but because he's a doctor, like you're, no, no, we don't need a family therapist. You're, you're, you're not coming. You know, <laughs> it would have been hilarious. Like, I would have gone, gone mad. But um, ah, she was a great woman. Like, and may she rest in peace. You know, yeah, I she, remembered it well because I, I was wondering to myself, God, once she died, like, what kind of holidays am I going to have on my own in the future? Yeah. And you, this was starting off, and you needed a doctor on your trip, so really, it suited me. Even though I think it was 65 at the time, but this time it started. Yeah, you were, yeah. So, George, that was deadly. Like, thanks a million. We're going to take a little break there. And we're going to come back again next week, lads, to tell you part two of George's story, where we share stories about adventures while he and I are working together at Earth's Edge, including the famous story where, we, where you got lost in Malawi. That's going to come up. And I've got another few good ones as well. So, guys, stay tuned in and we'll chat to you next week. Thanks a million, George. That was great. Right, James. Thanks, Milam. This podcast was produced by Earth's Edge. We're a small business based in Ireland who organize big adventures all over the world. For more information about us and the trips discussed on this podcast, visit earths-edge.com or follow us on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to our mailing list to be in the running to win one of our summit jackets. There's a link in the show notes. And while you're there, if you could subscribe and review the podcast, that'd be brilliant. I'm your host, James McManus. Thanks for listening and have a super week.